Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. My special guest this week is master of one of the most important training establishments in the United Kingdom. And indeed, in what has only been a relatively brief career, he's already set records. He was champion trainer in his first season with a license in 2014. He has already trained classic winners and he is marching towards an impressive total again this year. Fastest trainer in history to a thousand winners. He took over from his father less than a decade ago. He is, of course, uh, Richard Hannan. Richard, great to welcome you to Luck on Sunday for the first time. Good morning, Nick. Thank it's you very much. It's taken me a little while. Few near misses. I've had people get married for the last three weekends in a row. Someone said to me today, "You've got another sibling getting married? Not this weekend." So I'm here. You are one of six, six, yeah, siblings. All of them married now. Some of them twice. <laughs> <laughs> and was it always, was it always predestined in, in in essence that you would be sitting there and the license holder from right from an early age, or or well, not so much? I didn't really get into it until until I learned to ride, which was pretty late, probably. 12, um, 11 or 12, and I loved it. And I started going racing with my dad and meeting people. And, you know, all of a sudden it became a bit of a, you know, it's, a, it's not a club, but it's a bit of a society. I was going racing from when I was very, very young, all summer. I loved it, got to know a lot of people, and that's how I got into it. And then, obviously, my mum made me go to university because my A-levels were good enough. I think we were all shocked. But <laughs> then I went away to Canada and uh, Australia, and worked for Dad ever since, really. No one else would have me. You, <laughs> what did you read at university? Yeah, I knew. <laughs> I did exercise physiology and geography. Exercise physiology and geography, yeah. that's an unusual combination. Okay, it's sports science. It's <laughs> <laughs> what it was. But it did have a physiology sort of bit to it, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed university, not as much as I should have done. Um, what I probably did was get fat and get a student loan and get into debt and had to start working at some time. Uh, and was, was there any po a point during that time that you thought, well, actually, I could go and do something else? There, there is a wider world out here. I could, or no, was the racing the so seductive? That, there, was, you know, there wasn't a wider world. That was, that was the world I was in, and that was the way I wanted to go. And now you look back and you think, why didn't I spend a year working in a pub or working in the city? And look, I've got a lot of friends that work in the city, and I think I'd have loved it. Um, it's probably quite a similar business, and I regret in some ways not doing it. And I see some, you know, people that have gone into racing early. Look, a lot of them train as sons, and they've done the same as me. And you won't change them at that age either. But when you when you get a little bit older, you realise that there is a bigger world out there, and probably should have um, experienced it while I could. But I, you know, I don't regret it to a point where I'm angry about it. No, you know, but I, I can look at it, and in terms of my children, I love them to go off and see. More things. And what, I mean, even at this early stage, can you sort of see what directions they might be headed well, in? Well, Eliza loves riding. She's only seven. Yeah. She might want to go into it. And Jack, he doesn't like riding so much, but it's easier than walking. And he has a bit of a, you know, he's a temperament and he's quite a funny little guy. And I, I'd encourage them and I'd back them up in whatever they wanted to do. And if they wanted to come into racing, fantastic. Did you enjoy riding? Did you enjoy the riding side of it? I did. I loved it. I wasn't very good. I had a few rides as an amateur, one of them around Goodwood, funnily enough. And, uh, yeah, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. And how was that? How was the experience of riding around Goodwood? Now you've trained so many winners there. Well, I think you get pretty early, you realise that it's not as easy as it looks. And you have a new respect for people that, that have ridden 
in races and how hard it is. And you see people criticising that have never ridden. And because it looks easy, it's not. You know, it's very different. When you're in your racing kit, as Jim Crowley would tell you, you know, your britches, your saddle, it feels like you've never ridden before. It's hard. And in, in terms of your attitude towards jockeys, has that made it different? No, I think, you know, a lot of, I'm friends with a lot of jockeys, always have been, always been, you know, very close to Hughesy and, and spent a lot of time growing up with him. And it's difficult for them, but they find it very natural and, you know, they're, they're all very good at it. In terms of my attitude to them is they have a job to do, a job which I don't really interfere with too much. I have my job, they have their job. My job is to get the horse to the races, fit, healthy, and once they get on, that's their job. And a lot of those jockeys are... You know, they're experienced, they're shrewd, they've been in the game a long time. Richard Hughes being the obvious example. And I guess you must have learnt a lot of him when you were coming up together, essentially. Exactly. You know, I was travelling to the races with them a lot. And so you get to hear the, the idle chit-chat, the, the jokes, the sport, the seriousness, the dangers. And, yeah, and a lot of them, if they're good, they do get to be experienced. A lot of them have burnout, and that's something they have to deal with. Am I right in thinking that you've made the mistake of playing cards with the late, great Pat Eddery once. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my dad sent me home with him one day from York, and he, he gave me 100 quid. I thought, that'll do. He said, I want to play cards with on the way back. I was only 15, and so I sat down playing cards, won the first two hands, making money, and next thing I lost it all. And Pat, he took all the money, and his agent, Terry Ellis, he said, how much did you lose? I said, 100 quid, Pat. He went, 20, 40, 60, 80. Won't play cards with me again, then, will it? And put it in his pocket. And I was just getting ready to take it off him. And he took it all off me and put it in his pocket. And I thought, ah, oh, I shouldn't have put my hand out anyway. Oh, that's, that's magnificent. Yes, a valuable lesson yeah. learned early on. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you, you thought that working in the city might be something that you'd have quite enjoyed or been quite good at. What is it about that sort of lifestyle that, that would have appealed to you? Well, I think... Working in the city, it, or certainly 15 years ago, it was, it was, it was. It's not gambling, but it's sort of you know you're on your own and you have to take risks and you have to take a stance or an opinion on something and you have to. It's it's about getting around the people and knowing how to sell something or not sell something. It is very a little bit similar to what we all do. In terms of racing now, you know, you're buying essentially something that has a share price, it costs 30 grand, you're trying to make that 30 grand into 200 grand. Mm -hmm. Okay, it doesn't work, you know, a lot of the time. But when it does, you sort of have to know how to deal with it. And I think the city's quite similar. Because there are people who sit in that chair who train racehorses who are, you know, their driving force is the, is the horse, and that yeah. is it. I mean, it strikes me for you, yes, you enjoy the horses and you, you appreciate them, but you love running the business. Well, I think a lot of trainers, not enough emphasis is put on the fact that you're actually running a business. And if your business isn't working, there is no, the horses aren't really worth having if it's costing you. You need to be able to make money from it, and that's the primary source, but you need to have good horses, and you're not going to make any money without having decent horses. So you have to select the right horses, you have to keep it pretty simple, and you have to do the right thing by them. I, I said to you when we were chatting the other day, you know, the fastest man to a thousand winners, yeah. and you rather self deprecatingly said, Yeah, and I started with nothing, you know, and, uh, uh, giving all the credit to, to your father, quite rightly in many respects, because he was a legend of the game and he'd been champion trainer three, three years out of the four before you took over. But you were a huge part of the stable at the time. How did you two work 
together? How do you work together? What's the nature of the relationship like between you? Well, uh, we still work. To, he's there every day. We still work together. You know, like we always used to. That nothing's changed. You know, I was involved in that business in the 20 years before I took over, and just like I am now, and he is still there in the same capacity he was. He's there every day, and we work together, no problem. We have our rows, they don't last very long, but just normal stuff, and we get on great. He doesn't interfere or tell me what to do, but he's always, I know when he's telling me what to do, and I don't ask, and I just go and do it. You know, he doesn't have to. Do you believe generally that he is mostly right? Oh, he's always right, yeah. Even when he's not right, he's right. <laughs> Simple as that. And what is it, do you think, about him that, that made this, um, this trading establishment, this empire, if you like, so strong? How did he do it? Well, I think he built it up in, on a very simple structure. He's buying the right horses, had a lot of nice owners, of which we still have, and it went from strength to strength. And we took it from, I think he took over 20, we got it to 100, 200, about 240 now. I mean, it sounds easy. But it's, uh, it's not, it's not. not you easy. have to it's have not something. Easy. So what I'm trying to work out is, what from from a son's point of view do you look at and think, you were amazing the way you did that. Yeah, and you try not to change it too much. You can tweak it and you can polish a few edges. There aren't many edges to be polished, and and just try and keep it going and stay in business. And what did you bring to the party when things started to develop? Because as I said, those three years or four years before the handover, yeah, when you were working so closely together, much as you are now, you know. Three trainers' championships in four years, four trainers' championships in five years between you. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, obviously a, a huge compliment to to us as a team, and I hope we have some more. And do you think you bring complementary skills? Do you think there are... Are you, I, different, yeah. are you different personalities? I think we're fairly similar in terms of personality, but we, we definitely complement each other, and, you know, he can speak in two minutes and t takes me 20 minutes you know but that's the thing that you I will learn and come up with as, a, as I get more experience and did, did you think that you could sort of move the move the yard forward in a sense were there ways in which you wanted to develop it well I think we wanted to get involved in more of the classic horses more of the later developing two-year-olds and I think we're achieving that to a point but you do get a lot more horses that it takes a time to get going we were always associated with early two-year-olds yeah and that you know, if you're not having those early T-rolls, people go, oh, that's not going like it was. When actually it's going just how we want it to, but we're getting the later T-rolls, as you're seeing now, as the season goes on. You know, a lot of people say that the, the real T-roll racing only starts after Royal Ascot. And you've had some lovely late developing T-rolls coming out just yeah. of late. Yeah, the last few days, lovely filly at Ascot on Saturday, on Friday, and Mum's Tipple and Man of the Night, uh, Mystery Power, Threat. That's Plenty just, of them. Yeah. Yeah, they've got some nice T-Rods for, for next week as well. And I guess when you were in that golden period of having horses who were competing seriously in classics and the, yeah. and, and the very best Group 1 races, you know, I'm talking the Sky Lanterns and the Knight of Thunders and yeah. Canford Cliffs and so forth, that's kind of what you want then. I mean, the, two, the early T-Rods are lovely, but you want the big-time horses. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, when you, when you have Sky Lantern, Canford Cliffs, Dick Turpin, Estacar, Tormor, etc., when you have those horses and they... They go off to stud. They create a big hole. And for the following year, two years, three years, you have to live without them and try and replace them. And it's very hard. Each Saturday, these big races keep coming. You're going, don't have those horses anymore. We need to go and get some, you know, because it's, it's a big hole to be filled. So you're just starting to feel like you might have the next 
Rafters. I very much hope so, yeah. You know, you need them, and it's... The nice thing is, I think when we started to, to go very well was when we had horses like Olympic Glory and Toronado. We were able to sell them internally. Mm. We didn't sell them, and they got on a lorry and they went down the drive to somebody else. We were able to hang on to them, use them to our advantage, and turn up in the biggest races, and that was a massive thing. All of a sudden, it was much easier to sell yearlings. You know, we buy all our yearlings on spec, and to enable us to sell them, you need to be turning up with a 60 grand horse that can win a Group 1 or a Group 2. So it looks achievable for everybody, and everybody, you know, they want to come along and have a ticket for the, for the lottery. Yeah, because Toronado and Olympic Glory ended up with Al Shakab to Yeah, you know, Julie Wood, I think she was there we, when we bought Olympic Glory with her. I think he was 52,000. And she won a Group 2, and, you know, Julie, she's... She knows when the right time is to sell, and she sold, she sold him, and every time he won, she was more happy than the bloke that actually bought him. And I thought that was quite amazing. And that's... They're, A, the people you're looking for, and, B... They're the horses you need. So she, her money that she got, she could. It just goes in the wheel, and she can go back to the yearling sales and go again. And as far as the the horses that you, you were talking about around that time, I mean, I, I have distinct memories of you with Sky Lantern when she won the yeah. won the guineas. I don't think I've ever seen you happy yeah. after a race. I think that was before the transfer of the license as well, yeah. wasn't it? But yeah. you, she'd very much been a sort of a project of yours. Yeah, she was an am- amazing filly. And just the sweetest thing to deal with. And I remember I got a new pair of shoes, and when she got beaten in the, uh, in the Nell Gwynn, I kicked a wall. No one was around, I checked. Kicked a wall, and it was a brick wall. Well, these shoes were wrecked. <laughs> I thought, well, she's, not gonna, the wall that yeah, well, she's not gonna win the Guineas, is she? That's that. All the whole winter dreamy is all over. Hate the game. I want out, you know. Kick this wall, and the shoes are ruined. Had to throw them away. Then she went and won the Guineas, and that was the most amazing day because we didn't really expect it, the way she won it. And it was, I'll never forget it, it was an amazing feeling. Um, my best days racing, funny enough, wasn't that day, it was when she won the, the coronation, the Royal Ascot, and she won like three and a half lengths. I, I think I cried like a baby that day, it was, it was embarrassing, but she was amazing. Why was she so special to you? Because she was always quite an ordinary filly. I think when we got her, I think the stallion had died, the mare had died, a half-sister had died, and she was just on her own. And, as you, you know, she was a grey, she had very long ears. She, she's a beautiful filly, but in so many other ways, and she became such a character of the yard. Mm. And she never did anything at home. I remember we didn't have her in the Moigler. So Ben Keswick and his family had to supplement her. It cost £20,000 in those days. And so I worked her three days before she was going, and Richard Smith... You know, I worked with Godolphin, and he said, well, there's no point running this. He said, this won't be in the first five, and she worked terrible. <laughs> I said, well, she's running, because they just paid 20 grand, and she leaves tonight, so that's the end of that. Anyway, she went there, and she won, I think, three legs, never looked like getting beat. And she was amazing fully, the way she could just sort herself out, and then, phew, done. Brilliant. And so she was, holds a very special place in your heart. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, she does. I still see her now down at Rockcliffe Stud, the Keswick Stud, and she's got... I think she's had three foals now. We've got a Dubarby colt, lovely big strong colt out of her, and there's a Frankel on the way. And, you know, for small owner breeders that owned her, all they wanted to do was, you know, they were offered all sorts of 
money for her. And they didn't want to sell. They said, we just want to see her out of our kitchen window on a Sunday morning. That's all. And that's when you see people when they actually love the horses. And she was so lovable because she was so different. She wasn't by a mega fancy stallion with a fancy pedigree. She was just a little bullet. And then your, your, I think your, your first classic winner with your own license was Night yeah. Thunder, wasn't it? In, in, yeah, in I the, didn't see that coming either. In the two, I bet you didn't. I'm not sure Kingman or Australia saw I know, it coming I know, either. I, know. I still, you know, I don't know how he beat Kingman, but he did. He was a very good horse, and he was unbeaten at two. He won that at three. I mean, you see on the, on the video here, he's going nowhere. I remember standing with Jemima, and as he went past the line, she goes, oh, damn, whose was that? And I just looked at her and I said, mine. Because <laughs> there were two others we fancied here, Shifting Power with the white face this side, Tormor just behind him. And he already wants to go home, Night of Thunder. He's hanging towards the gate there. Um, he, was, he was a great horse. And then he won the, we had a first and second in the Lockinch mm. the following year with him and Tormor. And now he is turning out to be an unbelievable stallion. He has Group 3 winner yesterday. I just managed to get beat in the listed race, but he ran a very good race. It looks an all right Guineas, doesn't it? Him, Kingman and Australia. Australia, yeah, yeah. I think exactly. it's the highest rated Guinea since 1971 when yeah. Dancing Brave, uh, uh, when, uh, when Brigadier Gerard beat Mill Reef. I often joke with John Gosden, because we have an owner in common, when we were sitting there having a, a chat and a laugh at the sales one day and talking about all his good horses, and I looked across and said, how did you get Kingman beating the Guineas, John? <laughs> <laughs> and in fairness to him, he laughed, which is great. But I mean, he, yeah, he was a bit unlucky that day, and... It was a very good guinea, though, and Kingman, in no uncertain terms, got his own back and proved himself to be a, a brilliant horse. Oh, a proper champion, yeah. You're good, you're, you are good friends with John Gosden, aren't you? I, I see you a bit yeah, together, well, you know, sort of sharing, a, sharing a joke. Yeah, he's, he's a good player, and, you know, very, very good for racing. A lot of the, uh, you know, the older trainers are, you know, they're, and they're, they're approachable, and I get on well with them, and I think, you know, that says a lot, an awful lot about them, an awful lot about the sport as well. That you know you can go to people that have been in this sport a good few years and that have trained champions and have been champions and you know and they're not they're not wary about people coming up. Of course, people are going to come up. We all know that. But I mean, they're they're, they're very good at, at being personable and accepting and you know friendly, pleasant guys. But it's a weird job being a racehorse trainer, isn't it? Because on one hand, you're, you've got to be an intense, intensely competitive sports oh, yeah. person, in a sense. Mm, yeah. And on the other hand, you've got to be full of bonhomie, entertainer, social yeah. Yeah, glue. It's difficult because, and I quite often say this with Andrew Pauling and Rafe Beckett, and I've got to them all the time, and I'll say, well done. And because we, you know, we go on holiday a bit together, and, and I always joke about it, I say, I'll always say well done to you, but don't think for one minute... I'm delighted about it, or I wouldn't rather it was me. And that's how you have to be. But you have to be polite. You're not always going to win, and you have to say, well done. You know, when you do it yourself and you win, it's lovely people coming up and saying, well done, and there's a pat on the back. But at the same time, you think, right, I've got to go home, and I've got to sort this out, and we've got to, you know, there's work to be done. But you have to be, you know, you're all working together, mm. as well as living together, and you compete together, and you've got to be able to handle, you have to learn to be able to take being beaten in this game. Have to. And if you, do, if you can't handle it, you really need to sort it out, or you certainly need to make it look like you can handle it. Mm. You can go home and... Not ruin it. the pair of smart new pair of shoes on the wall. Well, exactly. But that's immaturity, and you do grow out of that, and you realise that actually it's not going to change anything. You know, that's life. So you're better at that now than... Way better, yeah. I used to play a lot of squash. My mum used to take me. I, I remember hitting the odd racket on the wall, yeah. 
she went home without me one day. I do remember that. <laughs> I was left at the squash club. I was like, mm, what do I do now? I was only about 14, so I didn't do that again. She just wanted to let you know that oh, yeah. that wasn't She's really mini, the way to do Minnie McEnroe. How, how pivotal has your mother been to the success of the whole enterprise? Well, she'll be watching now. Uh, unbelievably, you know, she's been a massive rock for the, for the whole family. You know, for my dad, for the business. She used to hold down jobs. She would always sort out the lads' hostel. She still does. Now it moves on to... She's like the mother Teresa. She helps everybody, you know, our wives, our husbands, grandchildren. She sorts them out. She has them to stay. Yeah, big time, massively. Probably more than dad. And, and in essence, a, a big training operation like that, you are looking after a lot of people's welfare. And that must exactly. be a huge responsibility. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, these people trust you with, with their investments, you know, with these horses that they spend. They work very hard for this disposable income that they want to spend on horses. You're very lucky that they want to spend it not with you, but they entrust you to make sure that horse is looked after, well-kept, well-trained, well-placed. And also you have to... You know, I love encouraging the owners to come down to the yard mm -hmm. because it's almost like a race day. You can go out for lunch afterwards, whatever you want, and but you don't have the old, the ultimate thing of the horse winning or losing. If the horse gets beat, you're a little bit down. It's a bit disappointing. It's different when they win, but they don't always win. And if they come down to the yard, you don't have to deal with that. So it's just a very nice, pleasurable day that they can have on top of owning a racehorse. And where we're on our own, we've always been very happy for people to come down to see their horses and, and enjoy them as much as possible and enjoy the surroundings and our, our outfit. And can you turn it off? Can you shut the door and turn the whole thing off or not? Uh, no. Jemima gets very annoyed because it's a seven-day-a-week job. Yeah, there's Sunday racing now, and as soon as the racing finishes, then we go into the yearling season and... We'll have to, you know, we go and sell our yearlings and you have to be everywhere and people, you have to get people coming down. Mm. And when there's not racing, then you have people coming down. And, and if you don't give them your time, they'll find someone that will. A lot of our owners, they've become very good friends. So you want to go out with them anyway. You know, you have to when you, I have young children, so you have to put aside, you know, a Sunday or a, whatever day of the week you can in summer holidays, which is not easy. But you have to have the phone on and you have to watch the odd race and... Yeah, it's not easy, but can you turn off? Yeah, you can do. Or you can make out... You, you can make yourself look like you do, but you don't really. You know, what you're thinking of is Goodwood next week. I'm thinking of the, the vintage stakes, Mystery Power, great chance. Threat in the Richmond, great chance. A few in the Maidens, some in the nurseries. What, whether they're going to run in the Stewards' Cup on Saturday. Morris de Geese on Sunday. Wins a Monday, the 75 grand handicap for Embauer. Well, aren't we lucky though? Because if you don't have it to think about and if you can shut off and you're not busy enough, that's a, it's a fairly grey day. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albastiet Cruel Dubai.